It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Is the relationship between the United States and Mexico at a breaking point? President Trump threatened to slap our southern neighbors with tariffs on Mexican imports unless the country does more to stop people from crossing the border. Jay Johnson served as Homeland Security Secretary, managing the enforcement of America's immigration laws. He disapproves of Trump's tactics. Immigration was candidate Trump's signature issue, and he likes to give out grades, A's, I give myself A's. But on this, in every respect, in my opinion, he's getting an F. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Thousands of families are fleeing Central America to find a better life in the U.S. But is the situation a crisis? It's easy to open a newspaper and read about how Americans feel about problems at the southern border. But how do Mexicans perceive issues around trade, tariffs, and immigration? Joining Jay Johnson on stage are Jorge Guajardo, a longtime Mexican diplomat, and Julian Aguilar, a reporter at the Texas Tribune who covers politics and border affairs. Mary Louise Kelly moderates the conversation. She was a national security correspondent for NPR before she began co-hosting All Things Considered. Their conversation was held on June 28, 2019, just days before Vice President Mike Pence visited the border. Here's Kelly. I'd love to just get a quick take from each of you to set the stage. It's a basic question, but the, the what is at stake in the U.S.-Mexico relationship? From an American point of view, Jay Johnson, I'll start with you. Why does it matter if we get along with our neighbor to the south or not? Why does it matter? Wow. Uh, <clears throat> Mexico is our neighbor. It's a neighbor of 126 million people. It is one of our biggest and best trade partners. And um, well, first of all, uh, any of you who might still recognize me, I'm told that there are a few airports left in the US in remote places where they still haven't switched out the video and they think oh, really? I'm still the Secretary of Homeland Security. <laughs> uh, the airport video, which I find pretty amazing. When I took office, in 2014, late 2013, uh, somebody told me that functionally to the Mexican government, you are the US Secretary of State because DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, has so much in common with the Mexican government on, on the whole uh, and so whenever I'd go to Mexico City, and I think I probably did at least three or four times in three years, and they would oft, I'd often meet with officials in Washington, it would not just be my counterpart, who was then uh, Miguel Osario Chong, who was the Secretary of Government, but also the Finance Minister, Luis Vitagaray, or Jose Meade, or Claudia Ruiz Monsieur, the Secretary of State, and then... Uh, the president, Enrique Peña Nieto, would always find time to visit with me. And so I had relationships with a number of cabinet officials on a range of issues, the attorney general, law enforcement, uh, capturing El Chapo, uh, trade, travel, and of course immigration. And a large part of the DHS mission is promoting, encouraging, facilitating lawful trade and travel 
which means lawful trade and travel with Mexico and, and Canada. And the commerce between our two nations is huge. Uh, just take the auto industry, for example. Um, much of what Americans purchase in the auto industry is manufactured in Mexico, either in its entirety or through supplies. And so a disruption, any disruption in, in our trade relationship has huge effects on the, on the U.S. economy. Of course, through much of my time in office, uh, the conversation with Mexico was about immigration and border security, which, which I'm sure we'll get to. But I also spent considerable time with Mexico opening bridges uh, across the border uh, or on our initiatives to facilitate trade between our two countries and in the North American continent. I'll make the obvious point, which is, uh, Jorge, this is not a relationship of equals. There's an unevenness here. How does it look from the, from the perspective of Mexico in terms of what this relationship looks like in this current moment in 2019? Well, it's not an easy relationship, as you well point out. Uh, Mexico has a, obviously a long history with the United States, uh, beginning with the fact that we're taught at a very early age in our lives that the United States stole half of our territory which in fact happened. Uh, so when President Trump says uh, Mexico is taking advantage of uh, the United States, you can imagine the reaction uh, we, we get in Mexico, thinking, okay, how much territory have we taken away from you? Uh, but it, it's a difficult relationship, nevertheless, one that for the past 20 plus years, we've been told and sort of come to believe that it's a fruitful relationship, that it works to our advantages, that, that it is better to be a partner with the United States than to be an adversary. We had 70 years of one-party system in Mexico that ended in the year 2000, and much of that, uh, the legitimacy of that one party was built on nationalism against the United States. It was a government that would uh, stand up to the big uh, neighbor from the north and would give us our pride and nationalism, and that's how we were brought up now. Uh, in comes NAFTA, and in comes this whole new narrative that actually, rather than the U.S. being an adversary, uh, it's a partner, and, and it sort of has uh, worked well, and then comes Trump, and I li I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to let you leave it at that, but I will let you dodge it briefly by asking about your president. You have a new president, Lopez Obrador, just elected last year. Um, and am I correct in summing up that one of his uh, you know, vantage points that he staked out was he didn't want to pick a fight with anybody, especially not with Donald Trump because he wanted to concentrate on his domestic agenda in Mexico. How's that working out? Not very well, <laughs> clearly. So uh, here's the thing about uh, the former president, like most of the world, had Trump thrust upon them. So they just had to deal with something, with a new phenomenon. In come all these new breed of presidents that have sort of campaigned on Trump as an issue. In the case of Lopez Obrador, part of his campaign is I'm going to stand up to Trump. I will tell him he, he published a book uh, titled Oye Trump in Spanish, which, which was, would translate to hate Trump. Uh, in sort of saying, I'm going to tell him. And he has clearly chosen not to. He says he's going to focus on Mexico. He, he has not left the country in two years. He's not at the G20 right now as it's happening. He's very focused. Uh, in Mexico, I think it's unfortunate, but that's nevertheless, that's how he's taken it. And, and his whole attitude is, I will not pick a fight with the US. And, and it's, it's sort of frustrating, it, or it must be frustrating for President Trump, because I think there's nothing worse 
than to hate someone and not be hated back. Yeah. You know, so, so, so you see Much him. Much more insulting. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So, so he tweets uh, in the morning, you know, and, say, and throws insults at Mexico, and the Mexican president is like, I'm not going to fight, I'm not going to fight, I don't care, it's okay, I understand. So, so that's, that's where we are. And it sort of has been working, and, and I guess uh, President Trump now knows that uh, there's no fight to be picked there. But it's going to be a very difficult relationship, and, and, and I think it's going to get uh, worse. Mm. Uh, Julian, since you've just flown in from the border, uh, let me let you take us there and just situate for us, you know, this, all this jargon and rhetoric that gets thrown around. Is there a crisis at the border? Is there a national emergency at the border? What is the situation from, from where you sit? The, you know, the word crisis, I think, I think when this it started... The, the Democrats were hesitant to say it's a, it's a crisis. You know, now they're saying, okay, it's a humanitarian crisis. Where, and then initially Republicans were saying, well, it's a security crisis and a humanitarian crisis. So now we've all sort of coalesced around this one term crisis. But when you get you know, hundreds of children in, a, in squalid conditions in a border patrol holding facility, when you get a, a policy remain in Mexico where people are fleeing violence in Central America, um, wait two or three months in Ciudad Juarez, which unfortunately Ambassador is, is again sort of seeing an uptick in violence to wait to apply for asylum and then to be told that they have to wait back in Ciudad Juarez before their court date. Um, when you have Mexican officials that say that their shelters are, are crowded, that you know, they can't guarantee the safety and the security of these asylum seekers, then in that context, I think it would qualify as a crisis. But on the other hand, um, with respect to do I feel unsafe in El Paso, my hometown, going down the street um, in Second Ward, in the neighborhood my dad grew up in. Uh, my mom is a former customs official. Does she tell me not to go to Juarez, not to patrol or go into certain areas? Absolutely not. When the lieutenant governor of Texas goes on Fox News after a Trump rally and says if the border fence wasn't built in Texas, you would have heads rolling down the street the way they are in Mexico, um, that's just, that's false. So I think to your point, there is a lot of rhetoric. And, and just to go back on the, on the trade issue, it's not just the border perspective. I think through through May, we've had $203 billion in two-way trade with Mexico. That's billing with a B. And if these tariffs were put into effect, Texas would be the hardest hit, but then Mexico, uh, Michigan would be next, and then California, and then you'd go to Illinois, and then you'd go to Ohio. So the rhetoric just does not affect the Texas-Mexico border or the California border. This is something that's going to affect everybody. When I was talking to some officials about, you know, how do we, how do we spread the word about you know, these tariffs and you know, what they should expect. They said, okay, we'll tell the millennials they're gonna to have to pay more for their iPhones. It's like, uh-oh, mm -hmm. there you go. That's gonna hit home right there. So I think with respect to the, the headlines and the rhetoric and the tweets, it's you know, very concentrated, but we need to spread it out a little bit to understand what's really going on. Uh, Secretary Johnson, the Obama administration in which you served, y'all's record on immigration and the border has been constantly discussed and scrutinized. And I wonder, what is your take on how far outside the historic norms we are? Uh, because the Trump administration is, is yeah. trumpeting numbers, and there are record numbers of immigrant families showing up at the border. Yeah. They have a point. You know, enough people, we, we haven't really pointed this out enough. <clears throat> Immigration was candidate Trump's signature issue. And... He likes to give out grades, A's. I give myself A's. Uh, but on this, in every respect, in my opinion, he's getting an F. And this is a signature issue. Um, I, from my experience managing the enforcement and administration of our immigration laws, I have, for three years, 1,124 days, 
I have some takeaways. It's much easier to look at a problem and assess a problem and see the solutions when you're not in the, in the clutches of it. Mm -hmm. So illegal migration up until this year, uh, where we're approaching probably a million apprehensions on our southern border, up until this year, <clears throat> illegal migration has been a fraction of what it used to be. The high was fiscal year 2000. We had 1.6 million apprehensions on our southern border. And the stereotypical migrant apprehended then was the single male adult from Mexico. Those numbers have gone down dramatically such that in the last several years, like my second year in office, they've been in the range of 300,000, 400,000. My second year in office was the second lowest number since 1972. There are several reasons for that. One, first and foremost, is an improved economy in Mexico. The push factors always overwhelm any level of deterrence, immigration enforcement you can put on our southern border. And so the improved economy of Mexico, plus the investments we have made in border security on our southern border through multiple administrations over the last 18, 19 years. We had the spike, which everyone will remember, in 2014, in, in early summer, late spring 2014. The high was May 2014, 66,000 apprehensions, which back then seemed like a lot, and it was a lot by, by any measure. The numbers went down pretty dramatically, such that by August 2014, the numbers were as low as they had been for a long time. And I would say that was owing to three things. One, the enhanced messaging about the dangers of the journey. Um, I personally went to Central America uh, to amplify that message. Uh, two, we enhanced our enforcement uh, here in the United States. And three, through constructive engagement with the government of Mexico, we got the Mexican government to do more on their southern border with Central America, such that the numbers dropped off pretty significantly. The corollary to that, however, is as long as the underlying push factors exist in Central America, we're going to continue to wrestle with this problem, and the numbers will always revert back to their longer-term trend lines. And so when Donald Trump got into office in 2017, there was a very sharp drop-off in the numbers owing primarily to his rhetoric, his anti-immigration rhetoric. But then the numbers started to creep up again, and they're now in the range of over 100,000 a month, which is, or at levels we haven't seen in years. And I believe it's, frankly, due to any, any perceived changes in enforcement policy are amplified by the coyotes, the smugglers, who, yeah. who, who, who message this in Central America. And so, and there's a snowball effect to it. And the numbers are as high as they've been for years, in large part, again, because of his rhetoric. So when you, when you say, I'm gonna close the border, um, the message in Central America is, you better go now. Yeah, you better uh, Or when you say, I'm cutting off all aid to Central America, which is the exact wrong approach. 
Uh, it sends a, a feeling of hopelessness in Central America. So the message from the smugglers is better go now. But, we follow up on something you said, which is it's always easier to see things clearly once you're out. What would you do differently? What did you get wrong? Well, I mean, it's always easy. Whether, whether it's national security, homeland security, uh, whether it's immigration, whether it's Russian interference in our election, which I'm talking about this afternoon, it's always easy to, with the benefit of hindsight, yeah. go back and say, gee, I wish I could have done this differently, or I wish I should have. Anytime you make a difficult decision, somebody's always going to say, why did you do it? Why didn't you do it sooner? Why did you do it at all? Um, <clears throat> I know wrestling with the considerations we had at the time uh, on multiple issues while I was in office. Uh, I feel as though we made the best judgments with the best advice we had. Um, and the numbers of uh, apprehensions on our southern border were, were you know, in, in the range of three, 400,000, my time in office. The numbers of deportations also went down, but we focused more on convicted felons for non-immigration offenses. And so illegal migration is a difficult problem. It's not easy. There are always going to be people who want to second guess. Um, <clears throat> but I felt as though we managed it as best we could. I just want to, before we move on, and I want to get Jorge in here, but... Um I want to let you respond directly to some criticism that's circulating this week. There's a photograph from 2014 that has suddenly gone viral again this week mm -hmm. um, that shows you at a holding facility walking past what appears to be children in cages. Mm -hmm. Would you take us to that moment? What was the situation that day? Um, and when you look at this photo that is now circulating now and being used as part of the Trump administration's argument that they inherited a bad situation that you guys well, set up. Well, very clearly, chain link, barriers, partitions, fences, cages, whatever you want to call them, were not invented on January 20, 2017, okay? And it, what's interesting is <clears throat> Tom Holman made that statement. Well, they were, they, they were used Tom in the Holman, Obama administration. Tom we should mention, served in the Obama administration and, and, and is now Under normal circumstances, to Trump. fact check that, I would have called Tom Holman, who was the director of ICE ERO while I was secretary, to say, hey, Tom, did, did you guys use these things for ICE facilities? So the photograph you're referring to was a facility in Arizona. Uh, I recognize the photograph because Governor Brewer was with me. And it was during the spike. And we had a lot of unaccompanied kids. We had a lot of family units. And under the law, once they're apprehended by the Border Patrol, within 72 hours, we have to transfer unaccompanied children to HHS. And HHS then puts them in a shelter and they find placement for them somewhere in the United States. But during that 72-hour period, when you have um, you know, something that is a multiple, like four times of what you're accustomed to in the existing infrastructure, You've got, to, you've got to find places quickly to put kids. You can't just dump seven-year-old kids on the streets of, of McAllen or, or El Paso. And so these facilities were erected. And that one was, I think, a large warehouse. And they put the 
they put those chain link partitions up um, so you could segregate uh, young women from young men, from you know kids from adults, until they were either released or transferred to HHS. And is that is it ideal? Of course yeah. not. Ideal, of course not. Is that facility still in operation? What's that? Is that facility still in operation? I, that I, my recollection, I, I believe that was very much temporary. That, that particular location, I think, was temporary. Many of the conversations you hear on Aspen Ideas To Go come from the stages of the Aspen Ideas Festival. The festival happens every year in Aspen, Colorado. This year's event just wrapped up, but we're already looking ahead to 2020. Mark your calendars. Aspen Ideas 2020 will be held June 24th through July 3rd. Passes for the festival go on sale in November. Go to aspenideas.org and sign up for our newsletter so you can be the first to know when pass sales start. That's aspenideas.org. Here's the rest of today's conversation, Mary Louise Kelly. Jorge, I want to move on to this eruption in the U.S.-Mexico relationship a few weeks ago, uh, prompted by President Trump's threat to slap tariffs starting at 5% and then escalating every month up to 25%. They cut a deal at the last minute on a Friday. It blew up my Friday night plans. Um, that the tariffs would not go into effect on Monday. And a, a big part of that deal, a key part, was that Mexico agreed to send National Guard to your southern border, to the Mexico-Guatemala border, to try to stop people coming into Mexico, which would then theoretically mean fewer people arriving at the U.S. border. Um, start there. I gather one challenge to this plan was that Mexico doesn't really have much of a National Guard at this point. No, actually, that's a good point. We don't have a National Guard. President López Obrador has uh, pledged to create a new National Guard and is in the process of doing it, but uh, to this day they have no element. So in, in essence, they're sending the army to, to the southern border and to the northern border as well. So in a country that is, we know we have a problem uh, with safety and with crime, and we're trying to fight organized crime and bring in uh, the rule of law, you have 15,000 uh, military future police elements now dedicated uh, to controlling immigrant flows uh, to the United States. And I think that's, that's rather unfortunate, uh, because that was not the mission for which they were created. And, and I don't think uh, I don't think Mexico should be the wall for the United States. I don't, and that's what we are becoming. We are becoming the wall for the United States. And I, I, I have no way of uh, justifying that. Mm. You've argued uh, that the U.S. is going to slap tariffs on Mexico no matter what you do. So why should Mexico concede anything? So uh, here's my personal uh, feeling about this, and, and it has been somewhat documented. Uh, there was a good article in The Atlantic, and hey, we're at the Atlantic uh, <laughs> Ideas Festival, so I'll plug it in, in how every time uh, President Trump feels cornered, he, he appeals to two crutches, trade and immigration. Uh, Bob Mueller had his uh, press conference on May 29th, uh, 24 hours later, uh, 
we had President Trump uh, threatening blanket tariffs, and of course that stole the limelight, and here we go. Whether or not that, uh, that is the reason, I don't know. But I will tell you, that has been always the case. Every time uh, President Trump feels under attack, he appeals to, to attacking Mexico, and it works very well for him. So here's the thing. Uh, Bob Mueller will be testifying on the 17th of July. The 45-day period uh, they agreed to uh, comes to its conclusion on the 22nd of July. What do you think will be the finding uh, on whether Mexico complied or not? I have my suspicions, and it'll be that it did not, and that he's going to go back to threatening Mexico because it plays well for him. So that's what it is. And so Me that we'll all be talking about tariffs on the border. So and we will, I, I think, and we will be talking about uh, immigration, the wall, and uh, blocking uh, Mexican imports all the way to the November election. Should we be trying to to please him, to to try to find a way to accommodate him to? not fall into that trap, I think it's a loser's game. We will fall in that trap every single time. I guess the question is, does Mexico have a choice? What is your leverage in negotiating? In this the, the same as the rest of the world. Does Japan or the EU have a choice to face the 232 auto tariffs? Uh, no, no, we don't have a choice. It's up to the US Congress, not to Mexico, to check the President of the United States. But we do have a choice in how we react. Uh, and accommodating, I'm not sure, or appeasing is the way to do it. In just a second, I'm going to open it up to all of your questions. But Julian, I want to get you in this, this deal that we're now watching the clock tick toward the end of July that the U.S. and Mexico has cut. The, the Trump administration is claiming success, that the U.S. got what it wanted, and that immigrant flows have slowed somewhat. And this is all because of this brilliant deal that was cut. As you track it from the border, I mean, fact check that for us. Is it true? The, the, the flows, as the secretary and I were speaking before the panel, they tend to dip in June traditionally. So I think the Washington Post had an article um, a week, a week and a half ago that said so far through June, the flows had dropped 13% uh, you know, during the same time frame last year. But overall, last June, they dropped 8, 18%. So um, the, the president will likely declare a victory on that. And with respect to this tariff threat, I think um, a lot of the president's critics said he didn't get anything because Mexico was already doing this. And to a certain extent, that's true. I was in Guahuila uh, when one of the smaller caravans was going, trying to seek asylum in Texas. And the state government there and the federal government, they did stop the Central Americans from going. And the Central Americans were not happy with AMLO, with President Lopez Obrador, um, because they're saying he's doing the pres President Trump's bidding for him and we should have the right to seek asylum. And I mean, they had federal uh, police on the, on the banks of, of the uh, Rio Grande on the Mexican side, the Rio Bravo, preventing people from coming, and on the other side, Texas had DPS and Border Patrol. Um, but I think the president's critics have to concede that agreeing, Mexico agreeing to expand, remain in Mexico, is definitely something that the Trump can say was, was a victory for him. Um, I think it's too soon to tell if the flows are going to decrease because, you know, we're, we're a few weeks into this. Into cause and effect. Into a cause and effect. Yeah. But um, to back up the secretary's point, when I was in Oaxaca and Chiapas in 2016, there were people who were saying, well, yeah, the, the coyote told me I could get a permiso if I just made it there. You know, even though President Obama you know, spoke until he was blue in the face about DACA and DAPA not applying to certain segments if they came after a certain date, the smugglers are smart people. They are ruthless people. They don't have migrants' best interests at heart. They're business people. So they will you know, expand on that rhetoric. Um, weather remain in Mexico trickles down, and people know, like, hey, don't even bother, because you're going to have to wait two months before you apply for asylum, and they're going to send you back. Just tough it out there. I think it's too early to tell, but again, 
is the president going to keep moving the goalpost back and saying, you know, because he never announced, I want XYZ percentage decrease by these, you know, he just said, Mexico needs to do better, and he'll be the judge and jury on what better is. That's, that's a lot of leeway that the president gave himself there to decide on, on the, uh, the progress. Yeah, I, I will just, I know you want to get in. I just will quickly add to that, we had a story on NPR this morning where we were interviewing a reporter in Guatemala um, who was describing being in a small town in Guatemala where they've got speakers set out on the square, where they're reading the news of the day and giving public announcements. Um, and one of the announcements was, you know, here's the 1-800 number, or whatever the equivalent is, for a coyote. If, if, if today is the day you want to make your move and start heading north, here's how to reach the guy. And so she called the number, and it was... Um, a, completely not hidden and, you know, furtive about it, but also um, making the point that a couple of you have now touched on, which was, um, if you want to go, you need to hurry up. Mm -hmm. And that every time uh, they are hearing rhetoric from the U.S. saying we're going to get tougher on the border and crack down and all of that, that they're, the you know, reaction is the opposite of what was perhaps intended. Secretary. That is free permisos. That is exactly what we found was at the root of the spike in 2014. I mean, they smugglers, might as well have printed brochures and handed them out, the right? smugglers were telling the families in Central America, go now and you can get your free permiso. Mm -hmm. And so when I'd go to South Texas and I would talk to the kids, to the translators, why'd you come here? Because the smugglers told my mother they're giving out free permisos. And then I'd ask, well, what is, what is the piece of paper you're talking about? And what they were talking about when you when you got to the bottom of it was, was the NTA, the notice to appear in a deportation right. hearing. That was the free permiso. And so we had to spend a lot of time correct, correcting the misapprehension because migration is a hugely market-sensitive phenomenon. It reacts sharply to new news and information that the coyotes amplify. The, the point I wanted to make that is that <clears throat> I don't believe keeping people on the southern side of the border, in, in Juarez, whatever, pending their asylum proceeding is sustainable at the numbers we're talking about, because eventually they have the right to come into the U.S. for their asylum proceeding. And logistically, you can't move all those people uh, at once for a prompt asylum proceeding, and sooner or later, that, that balloon's got to burst. I, uh, just to, to back it's, not, it's not sustainable. So obviously what the administration is trying to do is to send a deterrent message by saying, you come to the U.S.-Mexico border, you'll be turned back, you have to wait. But it's not a sustainable alternative. And the, you know, the long and the short of this, the big picture solution is we have to invest in what we started in the Obama administration, Alliance for Prosperity. We can do this, eradicating the poverty and violence in Central America. We have to, a lot of politicians in Washington don't want to hear this, they want easy solutions, but you have to invest in the root causes. And it can be done, it was done in Colombia, it requires a multi-year, multi-administration, sustained political commitment. All right, lots to follow up on there, and I hope some of you will help me out with that, because we are opening up the floor for questions, if you have one. Morning. Just a question, um, obviously our relationship with Mexico is much better during the previous administration, why was it that um, no attempts were made to create a deal, and maybe they were and just didn't happen with Mexico, to um, 
in, you know, so there are going to be refugees from Central America until the um, tactics that you're talking about would take effect. So why not a deal that, you know, together we're going to take X number of refugees, Mexico will take X, U.S. will take Y. Why no deal in that regard? There has been an attempt to do that for very simple reasons. Mexico does not have the capacity to absorb the economic capacity, the demographic capacity to absorb the number of refugees that are coming through our country. The United States has a population about three times the size of Mexico, a GDP considerably larger. It just has a greater capacity to absorb those refugees than Mexico does. I actually began those discussions with Miguel Osario Chong in 2016. Uh, to encourage the government of Mexico to develop their own refugee resettlement program and to consider um, holding on to some migrants, not at the levels we're talking about now, on the Mexican side of the border pending their immigration proceeding. And we never were able to complete the discussions. And we also began discussions with other countries in the region about uh, serving as places where migrants could go alternatively uh, for either uh, refugee status or asylum screening into the United States. And we actually achieved agreements with countries like Costa Rica, but they haven't been utilized in this administration. Just a quick follow-up on this, because this leads to uh, one of the other parts of this deal that was, that was being discussed, which was the um, safe third country Agreement, which um, I know would would mean non-Mexican migrants who are tra crossing through trying to get asylum in the U.S. would be told, actually, you're safe here in Mexico, stay put, and then you would not be allowed to apply for asylum in the U.S. Um, good idea. Did you all try this? Well, this the current U.S. administration is coming to this after spending two years banging their head against the wall on the belief that. You can stop illegal migration simply by, by putting more uh, U.S. military on the border, by changing enforcement policy, by throwing out Johnson's enforcement priorities, uh, and, you can, and it will all stop. And they're now coming to the realization that you, you have to employ other mechanisms. Mm -hmm. But you know, bottom line, You've got, to address the, you've got to address the problem at the source. Jorge, from the Mexican perspective. No, it's not realistic. Uh, and I, I mean, first of all, Mexico is not a safe third country. Uh, it's not. Uh, so, and again, that would imply absorbing numbers of immigrants that we simply don't have the capacity. And, and I'll uh, give you an example. The unemployment rate in the United States is what, 3.6% right now? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you read stories every day that the reason the economy doesn't grow faster is because there's no labor force uh, for that. Uh, business is complaining that they're lacking labor. So, so it's not as if the United States uh, can't, afford, uh, can't absorb uh, those immigrants. I think it's just it doesn't want to because uh, for other reasons, uh, namely they're being brown. So, so I think uh, Turning the, the debate into whether Mexico is a safe third country, I think it just misdirects the debate because it's not, and we can't take them. We, we don't have the, the economic capacity to absorb them. There's a question over here. Yes, ma'am. I just have a question about the, the children who are in the detention centers and what the actual process is. You said that you hold them for a certain amount of time and they get placed somewhere in the United States. Are there certain organizations that you work with 
that help to place those children? What, what's the actual process? That so if you come to the United States as an unaccompanied child without a parent and you're apprehended by the Border Patrol, the Border Patrol picks, picks a group of kids or families up crossing the Rio Grande, let's say. If you're an unaccompanied child, under the law, DHS, the immigration components, are supposed to turn the child over to Health and Human Services within 72 hours. Health and Human Services then places them in one of their large facilities run by a private corporation until they can find placement for the child in the United States, someplace in the best interest of the child, which is typically with a relative who was already living here. That's unaccompanied children. Family units are most often released. They are most often, after a brief period in a Border Patrol holding station where there's screening done, who are you, any health issues, any safety issues, are most often released. Uh, they're brought to the nearest bus station by the Border Patrol. Uh, and there are Catholic charities in, say, South Texas in the Rio Grande Valley or in El Paso that, and I know because my wife volunteers for them, uh, that literally clothe and feed migrants to, as Sister Norma puts it, restore their dignity. And then they go to the nearest bus station or airport someplace in the interior where they hope to go pending their deportation proceeding. Some are detained in one of three facilities somewhere for a period uh, not to exceed 20 days, and those are judgments made by, by ICE and CBP that they may be risk of flight, but they're almost always released after 20 days, after there's a certain level of screening, and they get an ankle bracelet, and so forth. So that, those are the various alternatives. Julian, the challenge, one of the many challenges, is there's the way it's supposed to work, and then the way that things are actually unfolding, a point driven home by the... Right. That's the way it's supposed to work. The way it's supposed to work. So I mean, I think I'm thinking of the, the children, you know, the horrific accounts right. coming out of this warehouse in Clint, Texas, where 300 children who were supposed to have been released in 72 hours are handed over uh, to HHS custody who have been there with, you know, we were hearing from lawyers who went in and saw them, no toothpaste, no shampoo, no showers for a month. Right, so... Um, that facility, it's, it's been in the news a lot, and I think after these reports, we saw, um, I think it was Tuesday that all of a sudden, or Tuesday or Wednesday, that they had transferred those children to a facility run by HHS. The next day, there were reports that 149 of those children were sent back to the Border Patrol. HHS, um, ACF, the Administration of, of Ch Children and Families, said we had to do that because we had no more shelter space. And I want to ask, actually, I want to ask uh, the former secretary, is that, is that legi a legitimate excuse? Does that happen? I mean, shouldn't HHS find bed space for these people instead of transferring back into a facility that was, you know? Well, yes. Uh, I know from personal observation, as unaccompanied kids work their way through the system, the closer they get to placement, um, their, their feeling of, of, of desperation dissipates. Uh, their mood improves, their conditions improve. And so in that 72-hour window versus the window where they're at HHS, it's simply a question of finding the space. And so it becomes a question of who's going to find the space and not of whose budget does it come. And so HHS 
its capability can expand and contract like, like an accordion uh, if they go out and get the private contractors to find the space. In 2014, it was most often at a military base uh, where they'd set up uh, a facility uh, to house the kids until they could be placed. And, and it goes, it, it go, you know, it can it expand, it can contract. So <clears throat> clearly, HHS has not done enough to acquire the necessary space to deal with the level of kids that they're seeing right now. And, and I ask the question because at least last year, it seemed like they were able to do it quickly in Tornillo, Texas, where they right. had, where there, that's the um, group there was BCFS out of San Antonio, and they erected almost overnight these facilities with, with the, their soft-sided structures, their tents, but they're air-conditioned, they had a soft there, field. There is, it, wasn't, it wasn't horrible conditions as we saw what was reported. So that's what a lot of people in El Paso were saying. It's like, Tornillo's right down the road. They did it last year. Why can't they do it again? You know, I, I, HHS... Office of Refugee Resettlement, ORR, is actually, last time I looked, only about 15 people. And they have 15 to- 15 people? It's to very do. small. Really? Yes, you'd be shocked. No they have to depend upon private contractors, businesses in Texas, which I'm sure you know, to go out and acquire the space, rent the space, to take care of the kids. And in 2015, when the numbers spiked, they had to move very, very quickly to, to achieve that. I don't know what's happening with HHS leadership now and why you have these situations where 100 kids are brought back. I can only imagine the desperation and despair when these kids found out that they were going back in, in, in the process and not forward. It's an excellent question, and thank you for this, because the, just listening to the alphabet soup of acronyms and, and people who are, I, I find it frustrating constantly when I'm interviewing people, trying to get to the bottom of how did we arrive at a certain point and where do things go next, and you know, you're interviewing someone from ICE and they tell me, well, that's a question for Border Patrol, and you're interviewing Border Patrol, and it's a question for HHS, and it's, I thought this was the whole point of the Department of Homeland Security was that <laughs> it was somebody was going to come in and coordinate everybody and make make it work yeah, together. The, so you didn't worry about public, whose budget line it's all it was. the government. So understandably, people people's eyes glaze over when you know you hear one agency say, "Well, it's that agency, this agency." But that's overall how the process is supposed to work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, more questions. I see one in the front, and then we'll head back there. Yes, ma'am. Um, Secretary, you mentioned root, uh, addressing root causes. I was wondering, um, really for all three of you, or four of you, what you think that looks like, especially considering the U.S.'s history um, in Central America, in the Northern Triangle. If you ask, we, we started investing in, in uh, Alliance for Prosperity in FY16, $750 million, which frankly is a drop in the bucket. And the number's been going in the wrong direction since and Trump has cut it off entirely. If you ask somebody at DHS today, if you ask senior people in DHS today, they will say, and in the State Department, and in our consulates, they will say that the money we began investing was already starting to make a difference in terms of helping farmers uh, in the coffee market in Central America and so forth. And so it, it it requires a multi-year investment, and it was beginning to make a difference. I, when we were in uh, the, the trip that I, where I mentioned Oaxaca and Chiapas, we also went to, to San Salvador, and there were State Department-sponsored programs where it was, you know, don't join MS-13, learn a trade, or stay in school. But the, 
the embassy there also said that sometimes the Central American governments, they, for example, just equipment, they, they would run their police trucks into the ground, you know, without, you know, doing maintenance and things like that. So I think there's also um, con concern about the way that they're using the money. And when Merida was, was enacted, I think those were a lot of concerns as well. It's like, okay, well, the U.S. is going to give you some aid, mainly to Mexico, some to Central America at the time. But a lot of folks were concerned about the strings, the so-called strings that were attached, attached that dictated how these, these governments could, could use this money. Mm. Um, so to back up your point, I, I did see programs where it, it was definitely working, but there's also concern on the other side that the U.S. is going to be too heavy-handed in dictating just exactly how this aid could be used. There was one back over here. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, I'd like to look into the way forward. I'm worried about this conversation because it seems that Mexico-U.S. relationship is a single issue as if it's only the border and, 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 and migration, is far more complex. We used to call ourselves friends, uh, partners, and neighbors. Now we're winding up being only neighbors by, uh, after the Trump administration came in. I don't know whether we can keep on calling ourselves friends, for instance, as, as far as the administration is concerned. So I'd like to uh, ask the panel if you could dig into the, the future a little bit. We used to have two types of relationship, cooperation or confrontation, nothing in the middle. How do you see or perceive the way forward in terms of the variety? And perhaps, Secretary Johnson, you can also speak to the perimeter of security that we have here. For instance, in terms of terrorism, if any terrorist wanting to harm the United States, the only way to come here is direct, through Canada or through Mexico. So you need badly this cooperation anyway because of geopolitical uh, conditions. So I'd like to hear your comments, please. Thank you. So first, and we, we haven't really talked about this much, but Jorge understands this way better than me. Um, <clears throat> immigration in Mexico is a very sensitive political issue. Uh, immigration is considered a human right in Mexico. And in Mexico, there's great sensitivity to not being perceived as simply doing the U.S.'s bidding on their southern border, on their northern border. And so there's a point at which the president of Mexico will feel that the national honor is at stake in its relationship with the United States, given the relationship with President Trump. And so the course we're on now, the dynamic we're on now, I don't believe can sustain itself for much longer. I think the relationship's going to become far more tense. I give the new president of Mexico a lot of credit for how he's handled our president so far, but it's not, it's not a sustainable relationship and a sustainable dynamic. In terms of the way forward, there has to be a bipartisan solution in our country. You cannot achieve meaningful immigration reform at any level without Congress, without a change in law, and without a bipartisan solution. And the well is so poisoned right now that that's simply not achievable. There's going to have to be a significant change in the political dynamic in this country. In terms of the security piece, um, the, the places where we need to continue to focus our resources and our investments and our intelligence uh, and our attention is at ports of entry. Um, the, the really bad stuff is smuggled in in vehicles, trucks. And statistics show that the largest quantities of narcotics and occasionally people 
are smuggled in at ports of entry, not across the land border. And so any border security expert will tell you more surveillance technology, more intelligence capability. So just uh, following up on what Enrique said, Enrique, by the way, did not identify himself. He's one of Mexico's uh, premier diplomats uh, and uh, an intellectual, per se, and I thank him for being here. Welcome. Uh, but he said uh, cooperation and confrontation, and I will caveat what you say that Mexico's uh, pride uh, may be threatened uh, by doing the U.S.'s bidding. Let me caveat that by saying by doing Trump's bidding. Yes. Okay. We're okay cooperating. Absolutely. We're not okay doing Trump's bidding if he thinks that the way he gets it is just by humiliating and insulting us. So that's when it comes into treacherous territory. And, I agree totally. And so that's when we go into the confrontation. Mm -hmm. I know we're supposed to look at this you know, from a larger perspective, but with respect to the U.S.-Mexico relationship, I, as a Texan, as a son of, of immigrants from Mexico, my mom from Ciudad Juarez, my dad from Chihuahua, it's, it's, heart, it's heartbreaking. One of the most stressful times is when the U.S. and Mexico play each other in soccer. It, sound, it sounds funny, but it gets into such a political, like, love it or leave it, or if you're so loyal, why don't you, you, know, why don't you raise that flag? And I just, you know, it's, it's disheartening, especially in border states, because there are immigrant communities all over the country in every state, and it's a beautiful thing. The difference, though, is that in Texas, in, in the border, it's right there. You can see it. And it's so entwined. So when there's all this rhetoric and finger pointing, I just, it, it breaks my heart. That's the only way I can say it, you know, and I'm, I'm speaking for a lot of Mexican-Americans, a lot of Mexican nationals, a lot of dual citizens, a lot of people that have been naturalized citizens. That seems actually a good place to leave it. Thank you for three very different perspectives on a enormously complicated and challenging uh, relationship. I wish we had another hour, but we need to get back out and enjoy the sunshine. Julian Aguilar, Jay Johnson, Jorge Guerrero, thank you. Aguilar covers immigration reform for the Texas Tribune. Jorge Guajardo was Mexico's ambassador to China. He's now a senior director at McLarty Associates. Jay Johnson was U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security from 2013 through 2017. Prior to that, he was general counsel of the Defense Department. Mary Louise Kelly is an author and co-hosts NPR's evening news magazine, All Things Considered. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our new website, aspenideas.org. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Keeleen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Jonathan Melgard, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.